Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterlin, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach and Los Angeles. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, the most comprehensive in-person and online resource for couples recovering from betrayal. And this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Duane are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are excited to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie, and I'm here with Dwayne. Hello, everybody. And we are very excited today to introduce a very special guest. Um, We're going to be talking with Dan Drake, who I will allow to introduce himself in just a minute, but I wanted to first say a few things about Dan and why I feel so honored and excited to have him join us today. So Dan and I met many years ago when he was an intern and I was a licensed therapist and I was working at the Institute for Sexual Health. And Dan was really, really, really anxious to work in the field of sex addiction. And I know that he, he tried for a while to, to get a job there. If that's, if Dan, is that right? You were really trying for a while to get hired at ISH? I was, yeah. I think it was 2008, 2009. That was, it was nice to start at the beginning out there. Yeah, and um, and then when you were hired right from the very beginning, it was so clear that we shared a mutual passion for working with partners from this trauma perspective. And Dan and I had the opportunity to facilitate a couple of trauma reduction therapy groups for partners, which was such an amazing experience for me. And we were also two of the um, APSATS founding board members. And Dan was also right there to support me and encouraged me when I was launching my cancer sexuality and intimacy program at ISH all those years ago. He came to a fundraiser that I had with his wife. And I just, Dan, when I think about my experience in this field and the people who have really been, have really impacted me in a deep way, in a powerful way, you're one of those people. You've just really been there. And even when we go for periods of time without seeing each other, I just, I feel you, you know, your presence and your energy. And I love seeing you and I love talking with you. And I so respect and admire you and all of the work that you're doing in our field. And thank you for taking the time today to talk with Dwayne and I. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, it's been been quite the journey these last decade or so, huh? But I'm congrats you too on your podcast. And this is just such an honor to join you. Thanks so much for coming on. And I, I got to see you and you did a, a workshop uh, last year that I got to attend on our topic. And so of disclosure. So I'm excited to talk to you today about this in even more detail. Yeah, that's good to meet you too, Dwayne, in this context. I, I, I've followed you and just excited to be here and join you too. Thank you. So Dan, I just want to let you know that our audience is primarily the people that are needing the help, the people that are in the trenches now and really fighting for their relationships, fighting for their own sanity, their own mental health, their own recovery and healing. And so we're going to be talking about disclosure and amongst clinicians, we can often use you know terms and language that would be not necessarily 
the best for those mm-hmm. those people that are listening. So I, I just want all of us to you know to be cognizant of the fact that we want to make sure we're using language that can be easily understood. So cut the cut the psycho babble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got to cut out the psycho babble. So Dan, do you want to introduce yourself and and talk a little bit about you and how you got into this work and how your passion is about it? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I'm Dan Drake. Like Marnie said, I, uh, I we worked together for, my gosh, it must have been a number of years, three, four years or so, about a decade ago. And I'm up in Studio City, California, founder and clinical director of Banyan Therapy Group. And we do uh, outpatient services. We work with couples, we work with addicts and partners, we do intensives. Um, and something I've been really passionate about is the the topic of disclosure. Uh, which I can talk a little bit more about as it makes sense, but it was not my first choice or what I actually thought would be become a specialty of mine. But it's something that um, I've really, really seen the value of, and so that's something that you know we wanted to talk about today. And actually, Marnie, we we facilitated some disclosures, and I know that's spanning years, long time. So we, yes, we have we have definitely facilitated some disclosures <laughs> together, and and I I think it's worth saying that when you have therapists that work together. Um, that that share the same approach and the same philosophies, it it does make the process a lot easier, I think, for the couple. Which, I, and I wanted to say, that's one thing that I want to emphasize is that's one of the most important things I've actually seen is having facilitators be on the same page. I've seen how badly this can go and what I keep hearing from people, how badly this can go is when when people are not on the same page, when the guides, the facilitators are not. So absolutely, that's been such a such a huge gift. So what I want to do before we we jump in, let's talk a little bit about what disclosure is anyway. So someone who's listening to this podcast and doesn't know that term or what that means, I think we should define it. Yeah, well, at the core, most core level, the disclosure is sharing the, the truth, the secrets after sexual betrayal. So typically what happens, especially with sex addiction, but I think in infidelity, the same thing. There's a lot of secrets, there's deception that goes on sometimes for months, sometimes years, sometimes decades, especially if someone's a sex addict. Part of the deal is sharing parts of yourself with the world and then hiding other parts of yourself. So those hidden parts are parts that someone's acting out sexually and they they tend to hide this stuff for you know for a long time because it's shameful. They don't want to share with people. So unfortunately what happens that secret world obviously is is damaging and it can't be sustained long term. So when a partner discovers that secret world, everything blows up in the relationship as you know, anyone listening, sometimes the, you, you may have experienced the same thing. And then ultimately what a disclosure is, is a way of reestablishing a, a foundation of truth in the relationship. So what was the extent of the acting out? What was the extent of the lies and the deception? If there's gaslighting or other emotional or domestic abuse patterns, Really putting all that on the table so that couples can can heal with a new foundation that's based on truth and honesty as opposed to lies and deception. So you mentioned the term gaslighting, which we use a lot when we're talking about betrayal. And again, for some people that might not understand gaslighting, do you want to give just a quick definition of what that means in the context of betrayal? Yeah, that's a huge one. I mean, we see we're seeing more and more examples of this more publicly talked about, which I'm actually grateful for that this this term's being used more. Uh, the term comes from a play, I believe, before the movie, but the, where it became most popularized is a movie in, I believe, 1940 or 44 or something like that. And so it's from a movie where it's essentially a pattern of psychological abuse where you where the perpetrator 
convinces the, the victim that their, their reality is wrong. So it, it's a way of shifting subtly and then not so subtly shifting their reality so that they start to question themselves. So, I mean, it could be uh, as overt as, you know, let's say I'm, I'm doing something and, uh, and my, my wife catches me. Let's say I'm on my, my computer and, and I turn down a, a browser really quickly when, when she walks by. And then she's like, oh, well, what were you looking at? You know, why did you, why did you uh, turn down your screen? And you say something like, I didn't do that. That didn't happen. So it's a, it's a subtle way of shifting the reality so that you know, I did something, but I'm trying to alter the other person's reality and, say, and have them think that that didn't happen. Yeah, and most partners will say that that is crazy making. That's really how making. we describe that experience. Well, that's yeah. exactly what yeah. it is. It's, I mean, in, in some ways, it's, you'll hear that. It'll be, well, you're, you're crazy. I can't believe you'd say that. I mean, you'll, those words will come out and, and partners do feel crazy. So uh, that's, it's incredibly damaging. But that's one of the things in disclosure I think is so important is to, to, for the addict or the disclosing party to recognize and own those patterns and say, you know what, when I, when I told you that this wasn't the, the truth and I convinced you that you were the problem instead of me, um, it really was me. And I'm taking ownership for that now. Um, so as painful as that is to realize, it's also a way that the partner can start to reorient her or himself back to reality and get, get her or his intuition back online again. You know, one of the things I, I want to bring up as you're talking and I'm thinking to people who might be listening and maybe the person who's done the betrayal is listening to this as well. And they'd be like, I'm never, are, are you crazy? I'm not going to tell the truth. That's, that's craziness. No, I, you know what? I want my relationship to survive. Get out of here, therapist. What are you talking about? How do you answer that? I think if, if you are listening and that's your experience, by the way, I, I first want to say I, I understand it. And I, I, I don't say this often. This is something that, that Marnie and Dwayne and I were talking about ahead of time. I want you to know, first and foremost, I'm in recovery from, from sex addiction myself. So anything that I mean saying in here, I want you to know that it's something that not only am I talking about just theoretically or, or clinically, it's something that I'm willing to do myself. So I, I want you to know, I, I get the idea of lying and I get the idea of saying, you know, hiding parts of myself because I've lived that part in that world. Yet I want to say, it, well, first of all, it, comes, it usually comes from these negative core beliefs. So if I feel at my core, I'm bad, I'm defective, I'm unlovable, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough then a lot of times I want to hide parts of myself. I don't want people to see that because that's really, really, really damaging. So if, if I'm feeling that way, a lot of times I'll... And I'm doing these things that are shameful. To me, I want to hide them from others. And I have this belief because I feel those negative core beliefs. I have this assumption if people knew all of me, then they would leave me or reject me. So what you're saying, Dwayne, speaks right to that. It was saying, what you're telling me, therapist, to share all of that, all the dark side, because... Why would I do that? That's going to kill a relationship. So I can recognize where it comes from. But I will say, in my experience, I've heard this over and over and over again from partners. Um, and Marnie, you can speak to this too. But I've heard women and, and partners say, I, I can handle the truth. I can handle the truth. What I can't handle are continued lies. I can't handle continued deception. I can't handle continued, you know, trickled out of this information. And that's what I've seen over and over again, that it's usually not the truth. It's not usually what the information that's shared in the disclosure that's ultimately going to undermine a relationship if the relationship doesn't work. What does undermine it is continued gaslighting or deception or emotional abuse. So it's actually the opposite. 
even though that may seem completely counterintuitive or completely counter to you know how people might think or operate. Uh, that's just what I've seen, and you know, you guys could speak to that if, if that's your experience too. I actually totally agree with you because that, that's been my experience as well. And a, a lot of times when couples come in, there you have that kind of trickle out of information. The person who's done the betrayal kind of gives them a little bit more information, a little bit more, and then a week or two later, a little bit more, and that becomes so psychologically painful. To do that, and like what you're saying, this full disclosure gives you that space to kind of start somewhere with the truth. Well, and, and I think a key point is we're trying to to avoid the trickle down disclosures. We're trying to avoid this because that's incredibly traumatizing to to think. You know, if I share enough information, most of the information, but not all of it, and then my partner starts to think, okay, that's it. That's everything. Okay, now I can now I've got a new foundation to build from. Now I start to repair this house that that crumbled in in, uh, in discovery. Well, what happens when more information gets discovered? It just crumbles the whole house and the foundation that was built, and it makes it even worse. So the disclosure process is trying to get this all done at once, where we're not staggering this out over time. We're not trickling this down. It's it's really trying to to build this up all at once in a, in a safe, contained way for both parties. That's not shaming or it's not an inquisition. It's actually a, a really safe, sacred process. It's difficult, but it's it's all done at once in a safe way. And I think it's very hard for couples sometimes to be told that they need to wait to do the disclosure. And partners sometimes are still, even though they know that they're going to have this formal disclosure in a therapeutic you know, setting, they will, in the midst of their trauma, often try to get more information and press their husband or their partner for that information. And that could be really hard for the addict or the person who is going to be doing the disclosure to say to their partner who they want to heal, they want to make things better. No, I'm not going to tell you what you're asking because I've been told by my therapist that the way to do this is in a formal process. And so I think maybe it would be worth talking for, for a minute or so about how would you respond or guide your client, who's the person who's going to be disclosing, how to handle that situation when he's being asked by his partner at the house or over dinner or before bed. You know, I want to know everything. I don't want to wait for this disclosure. Great question, Marnie. And it's a good thing to, to bring up because this does happen. It does happen frequently. This is something that I know we've all experienced in our practices and, and maybe people out there listening is, can relate with. Um, first, to, to speak to the partner, if you're listening to this, it may seem crazy making to say, okay, we're going to do a full disclosure. We're going to do this process, but you're going to wait, you're gonna have to wait two months for it or something or a few months until we can do this. And I want you to know, I, I completely get how destabilizing that is, how difficult that is. AppSats did a survey, gosh, a number of years ago. And uh, on a scale of 1 to 10 of level of distress, there's three significant events that, that they studied on this survey. One was distress of discovery of sexual betrayal. And then there's the wait time between discovery and disclosure. And then there's the distress of the disclosure itself. Now, can you guys, on a scale of 1 to 10, do you guys have a sense of how distressing the, the the partners reported those three events to be? Could you guys take a guess? Well, you know, I mean, they're all they're all so distressing. Or yeah, they are. You know, I mean, like I I feel for partners who are in that position right now because it's all so distressing. I mean, I would probably guess the because of through my experience the waiting, but um, that's that would be my guess. 
And I would say the shock of discovery is probably really up there is significantly distressing. But I would say that the waiting too, the, the from knowing something, but not everything and having to wait, I would imagine that that would be the, the most distressing part. I'm, I'm curious what the results of the, the survey were. Yeah, it was pretty close. So um, on a scale of one to 10, 9.6 was the distress of discovery. 7.7 was the disclosure itself. Now, that's still really high. If that's an earthquake, you know, that's a really, really damaging earthquake. But the wait time between discovery and disclosure was a 9.2. So I can completely relate to and resonate, you know, understand how that wait time is so, so incredibly distressing. So I think this is for, you know, not only the people listening, but for any disclosure guides out there to say, this is really important to get done as soon as we can because it's incredibly uh, distressing to wait. So I just want to say that. How do you handle that, Marnie? Was um, I'm not trying to avoid your question. Well, that's one thing. So when Janice Cottle and I we wrote the, this, um, we we wrote a complete guide to walking through the disclosure process for addicts and partners. That was one thing we had to we had to write an, an exercise for. So we addressed it. So from the partner side, we wanted to say we get that this happens. We get that you're going to want to know the information. And what's the plan in place? What's a boundary that we can set? We, we wanted to come up, what's a word or phrase that your addicted spouse can say to you to reaffirm the boundary in a safe way as a couple? How can, how can you guys reiterate, you know, whatever that phrase is to say, we're, we're waiting for disclosure and, you know, I want to hold that information until disclosure, whatever that phrase is. That's great. I really, I, I love this. I love, I'm going to have you continue, but I just, I think that's so valuable for the therapist to be proactive about this and actually encourage couples to to utilize that kind of a guide to say this will likely happen it's going to be difficult so let's prepare you and give you some tools for when that happens well that's one reason why these these workbooks became so massive because we had we thought of situations like this and we thought well that's something we need to address because it happens and what how do we be, be proactive with this with this kind of a situation so you know at the end of the day reiterate and then the suggestion would be to reiterate that phrase an x number of times that the partner determines she has the choice she or he has the choice to to say how many times they want that boundary reiterated by the addicted spouse and then my view is as long as the partner, you know, because I've also also hear this at some point. Well, I'm I'm you're married to me, not to a therapist, is what I'll hear sometimes. Mm-hmm. So then then the addict feels backed into a corner, and then like now what do I do? Because I want to I want to protect my partner by not sharing everything now and not doing another st- trickle down staggered disclosure. And yet I've been encouraged to hold this boundary. Well, at the end of the day, none of us. It's not my place as a therapist to you know I can guide and I can um, say what's going to be the most helpful. But at the end of the day, if uh, the partner is determined and, and really needs to know some information in the moment and understands that this may not be the full truth and that may be part of another trickle-down disclosure, my encouragement for the addict is to then share the information that's been asked. Um, I understand that might be controversial. So, Well, I was also going to say, because this is what I, I get a lot from partners too, to understand this. You're saying I have to wait two months for this? Why do I have to wait? Why can't he just tell me the truth today? He should know. Why can't he just do that? That's a great question. Because that's so, and it makes perfect sense to ask that question. At the same time, the reality is when I, what we do in a disclosure is prepare the disclosing party. And I'm calling him or her the disclosing party because sometimes they might not resonate as an addict yet. They may be early in recovery. So sometimes I, I don't even need to 
go into, are you, is a sex addiction? Is it infidelity? Is it whatever it is, it's sexual betrayal. And I want to get to whatever the truth is as soon as we can. Um, so to, for the disclosing party, the reality is there's a lot of distortions that they're, they're doing compartmentalization. There's all kinds of things that the way they think has been mixed with a lot of lies, deception, minimization, gaslighting, things like that. So when we're preparing these disclosure documents, I go through multiple revisions when I'm working with the disclosing party. I mean, sometimes 10, sometimes more because the first rounds of the truth, it may be the truth, but uh, let me give you an example. The truth may look differently. I don't mean this as a triggering thing because I know this, this can happen. So let me think of a general one. Um, well, unfortunately, it's a common one. So when this is two, two versions of the truth, both are true. If I say, when you were pregnant and uh, weren't interested in sex, I went to a massage parlor two times a week for such and such amount of weeks. Okay, that's one version of the truth. How do you feel when you hear that one? Not so great, probably. But when you say in such and such date, I went to a massage parlor such and this amount of times over this amount of weeks or months is different. So the, the, it may be true that you add in the context of pregnancy and not interested in sex. But my experience is what partners hear when you say stuff like that is... It's your fault. It's your fault. And, and that's exactly what my job is when I'm helping the disclosing party is I just take that out. And he'll be like, well, there's, that might be the context and it's important to share. But to me, all the partner's going to hear is blame shifting and it's your fault. So those are, it may be true, but ultimately that's something that's not, it's not important. It's not part of responsibility taking. So our job, we need to edit those things out. And sometimes that can take time because I'm also helping, helping the addict or the disclosing party recognize what are your distorted thinking patterns? When do you subtly or not so subtly shift blame? So now, now it, it becomes the partner, your partner's problem, not yours. So that can take some time to really, really get that nuanced, you know, writing done. So that's one reason why it takes some time, amount of time. And then I, I would add to that another reason is that oftentimes when a therapist is tasked with helping to get the disclosing party ready for the disclosure, there's a lot of crisis that's going on that has to be managed. And in fact, I believe, Dan, that we had a case where we were working on together and trying to get a disclosure going. Yeah, I'm fairly certain it was you. It was, it was many years ago. And the addict had one crisis after another. And I remember just being told over and over, I just can't get the, the document done. I just, there's so much crisis. And, you know, and then another thing could be that, that the partner really needs to have a solid support network and be prepared to hear this information. And so that can sometimes also delay the process. You know, a partner saying, give me the information, I want it right now. But when they don't have the proper support set up and they're not ready, you know, most therapists aren't going to move forward with the disclosure under those circumstances because it's not safe for either party. So, you know, there's quite a few different reasons to your question, Dwayne, why, why it's necessary to wait. And, and I agree with what you said, Dan. It is like torture for the partner. I, I cannot imagine being in that situation. I really can't. I mean, the anxiety, the fear, all of that, the trepidation, not being able to feel like you can even start healing your relationship because if you don't know everything, you don't want to start trusting again right? Because you might go into this office and hear something that you didn't know and then feel betrayed all over again. Yeah. I will say there's, there's something that, that we've instituted. We, we put a protocol for what we're calling an immediate safety disclosure in this workbook. If, you have, if you're saying, okay, I think disclosure is right for me and I'm, I want to get the full truth and I'm willing to wait for the full truth, potentially as much as I can, but there's some things that I just need to know right now 
you know, are my kids safe? Or, you know, is there, are there legal implications we need to consider? Are there, you know, things around family members? Are there close people that I interact with on a, on a daily basis that if, if I find out in two months, it's going to be much worse? That there's some things around safety that I need to know right now. That's what we're calling an immediate safety disclosure around some specific events um, that you could, you could do to give a little bit more time to wait for the, the full disclosure. So that's another kind of middle step if that brings a little bit more safety that someone could consider doing. I was just thinking about the person who's disclosing and how do you know that they're ready to do this? You have so many good questions. Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one too. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, no, these are tough, good. but these are, you know, I mean, I, I know we all go through this, but these are the questions that I think a lot of people you know, out there who are going through this process want to ask, how do you know the, the person who's going to do this is ready, ready to be honest? I think it's a great question. And it, let me back up a, a second to say, I've spanned both. You, you kind of have some people that, that tend to be more working only with addicts or only with a partner. And in general, I found if you, if you separate those two camps out, if there really are camps, in general, uh, someone who tends to be a partner's therapist, the disclosure or the partner for the partner, the disclosure can't come soon enough. It, it's got to come ASAP yesterday. And so it's almost never soon enough. And on the, for the addict or the disclosing party, it's almost like it's, it's never, I'd love to wait more. It's almost like we're, we're doing it faster than it always should. So I'm always wrestling those two, two points where it's, it's always on one side, never quick enough. And on the other side, probably too quick. And why I say too quick, because if someone's early on, generally we do disclosures early on. If we can, you know, someone may have just started to get into recovery. They may, they may still be in denial about where, what's going on. They, they may not have a good, solid sense of sobriety or recovery or what this process is all about, relational healing, empathy. And so in a perfect world, you'd have someone being willing to do the disclosure when they have empathy and some understanding of what their partner's gone through and even some understanding of what they've gone through and, and why they, they began acting out in the first place. But the reality is they're generally not going to have that full level of understanding and recovery before we do a disclosure. So I'm okay with that as long as what I, what I want to make sure and the addict, if we're going to do this, number one, I have to really see, are you, are you willing to tell the full truth? Because if, if we're going through a full disclosure process, you know, spending a lot of time, potentially a lot of money, and we're going through this whole thing, you really want to make sure it's, you're doing it once. You don't want to say, well, I'm going to do this and have half measures with it. So that's something I try to do. There's checks and balances along the way. I, I have people do inventories. I want to see how, how are people approaching the process? Are you only doing it with resentment? And it's, it's all about you know if, if someone's taking more of a victim stance with it, then it's, I'm going to have a different conversation about taking responsibility. So... I think there's a, I don't know if that's answering your question, Dwayne. I think there's something about making sure that the, if you're choosing to do a disclosure, that you're number one, 100% willing to be honest, as scary as it is, and a commitment that we understand, a commitment to, to really try to help your partner heal. And if you go into shame, to come out of it as quickly as you can. If you recognize you have a tendency to get defensive or go into blame, that you're really willing to 
step out of that as much as you can for a session like this to to bring healing for yourself, your partner, and your relationship. So those are the things I try to, to look at. And I, I would add that there are times when it would not be appropriate and we would have to wait. And I think that it's really important to address that. I mean, if you've got an addict who's coming in, but their shame is so high that they are, and their, their depression, let's say, is off the charts and they need to see a psychiatrist for a medication evaluation, if either party is feeling suicidal or the trauma is not stable at all, you know, like somebody's really experiencing acute overload of trauma symptoms, then we really need to make sure that that person has support. So also in the case of pregnancy, sometimes we, we're, that's a really tough call. I mean, I've been in that situation a number of times where a partner can't even imagine having to wait until after the baby is born but their doctor has suggested that they wait or we have to make that call based on their the acuity of their trauma symptoms plus being you know pregnant that we don't think that it's in their best interest so i think that's important and then you know speaking to Dwayne, the other question you asked about how do we know if they're ready i also think it's important to talk about the fact that there are therapists like dan you were saying there is these two camps and if there's a therapist who really only works with the addict, sometimes what we might hear from that person is, oh, he's not ready. However, and I get that, and that does come from that old school thinking where really it should take a lot of time and it creates a tremendous amount of angst for the partner in that waiting period. However, many addict therapists who are partner-centered might still have to come back with he's not ready. And that's so hard to hear, but it's important to understand the reason why. Again, as a therapist, we want to make sure that you get this disclosure one time and that it's really going to be thorough and complete. And if we have a client in our office who is still saying, well, I'm going to do the disclosure and I'm going to be 99.9% .9 honest, but there's this one thing and I am never disclosing it no matter what, because she will definitely leave. I, I know for a fact that none of us on this call would say to that guy, okay, all right, then we'll do it. So. We have to work with that and really help get that person to be willing to do the full disclosure. And it is complicated and complex because while we're doing this with this with the addict and trying to help him, you know, his partner's over there and her therapist who's trying to advocate for her, you know, they're trying to manage this whole thing too. And it could be really difficult for both sides. I think that goes to the saying why you, you really need seek out professionals that have done this and are trained in this process because it is very, very complex and there's a lot of moving parts and we want to make sure that we minimize the traumatic impact to everyone involved. And uh, it just kind of goes to the complexity of all this, just as we're talking about it. And I want to add, I want to add one more question, Dan. Another tough question. <laughs> Good. Wait, before you add it, Twain, on that note, I want to just ask one. Can you hold that question for one minute? Sure. Okay, because this other question that we had talked about, I think, I think this is the context in which to ask it. Basically, so Dan, we get asked this question a lot. Isn't disclosure contradictory to the ninth step amends process, you know, which is make amends except where to do so will cause harm? I have heard that so many times and I certainly know how I respond, but I'm curious whether about whether you've been challenged with this and if so, how you respond. Oh, sure. All the time. Well, first of all, we have to look at who's saying this. It's generally the addict saying this, not the partner. So I want to say that um, it's generally and and if you tease it apart, when I boil it down, it usually comes down to fear. So 
Here's the reality. If you're doing a disclosure, it is going to be painful and sometimes traumatic. And that might be hard to hear, but that doesn't mean it's not good or, or healthy. So sometimes I use the example, actually a lot of use it, of, of a surgery. Um, let's say even, even more extreme, cancer. Let's say I have a tumor and this is something that we obviously we've, we've had to address, Marnie, right? So when you're thinking of cancer, could in some cancers, you may be able to live without removing the tumor. Some you may, but a lot you won't. So you could think of it, you do cancer uh, surgery for removing a tumor, it is going to be a painful process. The recovery is going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. And yet it's the way to help you live. It's a way to help you survive. So you also have to look at what happens if you don't do a disclosure. What what's often happens if if the partner is saying, I want this disclosure, this is going to help me heal. And then the addict is saying, well, I'm not going to do this because it's going to hurt you. Usually what ends up happening is that relationship stagnates. It really doesn't go well because ultimately all the partner is going to be feeling is you're not taking my my health, my needs, our relationship seriously. I don't. How am I even building a new foundation of truth to this? If you don't have truth, I don't see how you have any kind of safety. Where do you build safety from? It's just sort of in the air that safety comes. And then trust, where do you build trust from if you don't know what, what you're dealing with? And it's certainly hard to have any kind of vulnerability or intimacy if you don't have any of those things. So I think I go there and seeing that, yes, it can be painful. But oftentimes, if I look at it, it usually comes back to my core beliefs of, man, this is so scary to say I'm going to share everything with my partner and have some kind of faith and trust that they're not going to run with this and leave me. So that's usually what I hear more than, than anything. Um, because oftentimes, it comes from the addicted party side, not from the partner side. The partner understands this is going to be painful to hear, but I need it. I need it to heal. Otherwise, it's going to uh, take me out. So that's, that's something I would say. I love that example because I do use that with clients. I do bring my own experience as a cancer survivor in. And I will say, I get you don't want to do this. And I also, I didn't want to have chemotherapy. I didn't want chemotherapy. I didn't want to lose my hair. I didn't want to have my life interrupted for eight months with that. Forget the, the surgeries and all of that, but just chemo. But I always say, but am I glad I did it? Yeah, because I'm alive. Yes. I'm alive and I'm healthy. And I, I reduce significantly my chances of ever having a relapse of cancer or recurrence. And so that is something, when I explain it that way, it really does help people understand. They're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Or the idea of getting surgery and then having to go to physical therapy, which is so painful, right? Yeah. <laughs> so painful. But it's the physical therapy that'll strengthen whatever that is so that they can actually be healthy and continue to, to, to run and, and live and, and thrive in their life. Yeah. And, and hopefully in a ways that, and I don't say this in a, um, I don't mean this in a cheesy way or a hokey way, but that I, I b- firmly believe that couples can have a deeper intimacy as a result of or through their, the way they, they navigate all this, this, this painful process. It's not easy and it's built. It's, it's a relationship forged in a fire. I mean, it does take a lot of effort. And yet the, the work fought for this builds a new intimacy. It builds a new foundation of trust and um, security in a relationship that I think is really beautiful to see in so many couples that, that are willing to take this. But if you don't, then that malignant tumor is not going to go well. It's going gonna, it's gonna to just get worse. So anyway, that's, all, that's the way I would see it. So I, I, I love that that's... You know how you approach it too, Marnie. Yeah, I also, the, the other thing I think is really important to say is that when I'm working with the person who's going to be doing the disclosing and they say something like, there's that one thing, there is no way I'm going to disclose it. I say, 
Can you imagine what it would feel like for you to tell your partner and for her to love you through it and to say, you gave me the truth. Now, I I can't say that in every case, no matter what that thing is, whatever that detail is that the person wants to hide, will be accepted and embraced (laughs) by the partner. However, in my experience, I would again say 9.999 out of 10 times, I have seen the partner stay through whatever's disclosed. And so to help the addict in this situation understand that they will be able to be, I mean, think about the shame reduction in that, that they will be able to look at their partner and know that they're not hiding anymore and that this person loves them 100%, not just for who they think they are, but they know that person and they can still love them through it. That is such a gift of this process. But at the same time, that can be so terrifying for the addict to go through that process. I mean, that's the nature of vulnerability. That's the nature of connection is we are ourselves, all the parts of ourselves, and we bring that to the relationship and we take the risk of being accepted or not. Well, and that's why that's why we have we have to utilize the 12-step program and supports and sponsors and group therapy and our own therapists and all of that in order to have the support necessary to go through such a scary experience. Right. And if you think about the, you know, that phrase that that common phrase, we're, we're only as sick as our secrets, I think it's true, especially in this context. And what's that phrase from the big book? Something like those among us who are not able to recover were those that were constitutionally incapable of being honest. I mean, that's the one, if I, as long as I read it, I mean, you guys tell me otherwise, but that was the one thing for people that aren't able to recover are those that can't be honest. So how important it is and how scary. I think it's so true, Dwayne. I, I don't say it's, I don't say this lightly. It takes a lot of courage. And that's why I honor, I deeply honor anyone willing to take this journey through disclosure, whether uh, the disclosing party or the, the partner. I mean, I'm to, to entrust someone like me or someone like us to help guide through such a, a vulnerable process is, is a really big honor. And I take that honor really seriously. So I think that's an important thing to say that this isn't to be... Uh, that's why I don't... And that's another thing why it takes some time. I don't want to just, okay, let's just do this in the next session and just get it done with. I really want to make sure it's done right. I want to, Every word that's on that document is important to me because every time I'm reading, if I'm preparing the, the addict, then I want to say... I'm the filter. I want to say, what's the partner going to be hearing when, when this is, is read? And is this going to come, how is this going to potentially come across? So I really try to, to put myself in the partner's shoes with everything that I read. And is it going to be paint too many, too many images that we don't need to paint? Is it, is it going to, is there blame shifting language? Is it minimization? You know, a subtle thing like, I rarely did such and such. Right. <laughs> Comes across like minimizing, but it happens all the time or passive, passive voice. I, and I think, I could say 100% of the disclosures I've read, it's pretty common that someone will say something like, um, the behaviors occurred on such and such date versus I did something on such and such date. And it's a really subtle thing, but on that's another thing that I'm filtering out when I'm reading because it's a way that we can, if we're writing these things, it's a way for us to distance a little bit. Like, oh, this thing happened. It's this, this other thing as opposed to I did this. And that's an, those words are important to me because that's saying... If I change it to active voice, I'm, I'm taking responsibility for what I did as opposed to these things just not happened, happened to me or happened around me or just sort of occurred. So those are, they're all really important. And, and again, another reason why this can take a while. Right. And I have one more question I, th- I think is, is important to ask as well, because what about, does my partner need to know all the juicy details? 
you know, because there is there there are some limits around that. And, you know, sometimes when we hear disclosure, that means I've got to tell everything. I got to say all the details about it. And uh, I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, that's a good question too. And again, I think that's as the that's why it's important to have a professional guiding through this um, through for both parties, if if possible. In a perfect world, you'd have someone helping the partner, someone helping the um, the addict. The short answer is yes and no. I mean, no. The reality is no. Does, does the partner need do, do do you need to know every single fact, every single gory detail? For example, knowing oh, I'm not going to give examples, but but knowing all the the juicy details. Usually, there's deeper questions underneath it. So, if I'm trying to understand the characteristics of, let's say, another woman, you know, all the different characteristics, what did they look like, all those kinds of things, most likely from the partner's side, it's really getting to ask what the real question is. And it's probably more deep, deeper grief question Do you not love me? Do you not find me attractive? Am, am I not enough for you? Um, I feel defective. So, it's being able to express those things, getting to know, you know, body type or hair color or things like that is. Is not significant details, but but getting the full extent, the skeleton of what happened, you know, so that it's all there. Sometimes there are cases where it's helpful to know. I'm trying to think of an example. Like we wouldn't usually share specific location names or place names because it really it's again for triggers. This phrase, there's no there's no bleach for the brain. You can't you can't undo information. So I would much rather start with talking about a hotel. Let's say, as opposed to a specific name of a hotel, and if the partner has a good reason for saying, "Yeah, well, this specific hotel, you told me this about, and it was a special place for us, and I want to make sure that it's still a safe place for me." Okay, maybe we do share that level of detail for that place. That makes sense to me. But but giving specific names or specific place location names and all the juicy details, I think ultimately create more. More images and more trauma that we'll have to to process later. So I remember years ago, um, an addict that I was working with gave me his disclosure, and he had put in it the uh, hair color of all of the the prostitutes. And one of them, you know, was was he described red hair. And I said, okay, take all of this out. <laughs> and I had to really explain to him how do you think this is going to land on your wife if she ever sees a woman who has red hair? That's what she's going to think of first, right? And the person was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I just wanted to give all the information. You know, I've been encouraged to give all the information. And I was like, well, we want to give all the necessary information while doing that in a way that's going to eliminate, eliminate as many triggers in the future. Same thing with names. Imagine, you know, putting the names of acting out partners in a disclosure. And then every time your partner hears somebody with that name, they have to live with that as a trigger and a memory. That's not only going to keep them from recovering in terms of their own healing, that's certainly going to take a toll on the relationship. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good thing. A good example, Marnie. I had the same thing. I was working with a partner and with hair, you know, the partner found out about a hair specific hairstyle, and wouldn't you know it? Now those are triggers that we she had to work through the specific hairstyle of you know anytime she'd walk down the street and see a specific hairstyle, she would be triggered. So that's the level of detail. If you could make a case why that knowing that's important because it has some sort of significance in your relationship, fine, we can talk about that. But it's but to know every single detail, just to know every single detail, to me that's not the most significant part of a disclosure. Right, right. I agree. So as we're starting to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, Dan, if you can just share a little bit about the books that you wrote and some of the things that people will get from looking at those books, how they can be helpful, and then also where people can find them. 
Yeah, sure. There's a couple things. So <laughs> this was uh, Janice Cottle and I, we were working on these for, it's been about two or three years. It became a labor of love. We put them together and we thought, oh, we have got, we've got some resources for, for clients to help walk through the process. And then the more we worked on them, we thought, oh, we're missing this piece and we got to add this piece. So really what we did, if, if you want to find them, you can find them on a little bit more information about what we have on disclosurehope.com is a site. Um, you can find them on Amazon too. But really what they do is walk you through the whole process. So uh, the, the first third of the, the workbook is, is really about what is disclosure? Is it right for me? What are the benefits and risks? Really trying to understand what the process is about. The second third of it is, is preparing for it. You know, mentally, emotionally, the, the content of the disclosure. And then the third, the third third is really about uh, what happens after. So more empathy building from the side of the, the um, addict. And then also from, from the partner side, it, it gives you, you know, some more healing towards uh, what we call an impact statement and really starting that, that journey of grief and the, the healing that comes through grief. So that's, I will say, it may be a little confusing for at least a couple more months. Um, we have the full version of the addict or the disclosing parties guide online right now. Um, and we're, we've got a condensed version of the partner's uh, book, which is essentially the second third of that, that process of preparing for the disclosure. We're, we're doing final edits for the, um, the full version for the partner, but the full version for the addict is online. So hopefully it's not too confusing, but... That's what we wanted to do. There's a lot of other good resources out there, you know, for clinicians or for that kind of generally explain the process. But what Janice and I wanted to do was to walk it through very specifically. It's meant, you know, for anyone uh, listening, it's meant for you to walk through with the support of a professional to ultimately know what, what this can look like and how best to advocate for yourself and what you need. So we wanted to tailor it, not saying there's one exact way to do this, that every couple comes in this and needing different things. So there's different ways of walking through it and, and helping you find what are the questions, what are the ways that, that we, can, we can get on the same page as a couple. And also to make sure that our, our disclosing guides, disclosure guides, whether those therapists or coaches or clergy or whoever, that everybody's on the same page too. Because ultimately, that's what I've seen go really badly at times is, is that the the professionals guiding this, not being on the same page can undermine the process by undermining each other. So that's a little bit of walking through it. Awesome. And what I'll do too is I'll put all the links on our website, helpingcoupleshealcom So people can also find it all there as well. So cool. we really appreciate you coming on, Dan, and being part of the Helping Couples Heal podcast and sharing your wisdom. I mean, it's been great. Oh, it's so good. I'm, I'm so glad you guys have this podcast and for all the, the healing that you're going to be helping couples with. That's amazing. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I feel like, I really feel like, you know, we're a team. All of us who do this work, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of collaboration. And I'm personally incredibly grateful to be able to have the two of you to work with and to look to and consult with and learn from. And yeah, I feel incredibly lucky. And I also feel like the clients that get to work with both of you are incredibly lucky as well. Oh, thank you, Marnie. Thanks, Marnie. Um, well, Dan, thanks again. How how can people find you if they if they want to reach out to you? You can find me on my website. It's banyantherapy.com. B-A-N-Y-A-N therapy.com. It's probably the easiest way. Thank you, Dan. And we will see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. 
If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.